the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Let Us Reason, a Christian-Muslim dialogue with host Al Fadi. Let Us Reason is a unique show utilizing theology, apologetics, and evangelism to reach Muslims for Christ by comparing and contrasting Christian and Muslim doctrines. And now, your host, Al Fadi. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us in another episode of Let Us Reason. I'm your host, Al Fadi, and uh, I'm excited um, uh, to tell you that uh, Dr. Dwayne Alexander Miller, who was with me last week, is going to uh, continue uh, uh, the discussion with me this week as well, and possibly even next week, on uh, very interesting topics uh, based on his uh, own uh, research, his Ph.D. research and dissertation, and many uh, other works that uh, he is doing um, uh, related to Muslim backgrounds and work in the Middle East and uh, in really very uh, interesting areas uh, of the world. And uh, Dr. Miller, as I mentioned before, has his Ph.D. in Divinity uh, from University of Edinburgh uh, in Scotland, and uh, his doctoral research uh, was on the contextual theologies proposed by Christian converts from Islam. And the book that uh, was the product of this research and just been published recently about a month ago, which you can find on Amazon. I, you can even look up the table of content. I'm looking at it myself right now, and you can even get the Kindle version. The book is called Living Among the Brickage, Contextual Theology Making and Ex-Muslim Christians. Uh, Dr. Miller, thank you again for joining us. I'm just really happy to be here with you. Um, could you um, give our listeners just a, a brief background about what do you do now? What is what is the line of work you're doing right now? Well, I'm involved in a combination of ministry and higher education. I like to say I'm a medieval man. You know, for many centuries in the Christian world, you could be a professor and a pastor like Martin Luther, like Thomas Aquinas. Uh, today, everyone tries to force me and say, well, are you a minister or are you a professor? And I, I really do both of those things. Join the club. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I like it. I really enjoy it, even though it, it's hard for people to understand sometimes. Um, I do a lot of public speaking. My title is a lecturer and researcher in Muslim-Christian relations. I work with uh, a small uh, institute uh, here in San Antonio. It's called the Christian Institute of Islamic Studies, tciis.org, if you want to check that out. And uh, we're really just focused on helping the Church to understand Islam, uh, not in order to uh, demonize Muslims or to be xenophobic or uh, mean or anything like that, but really to understand Islam uh, so that we can have a constructive, uh, fruitful, generous conversation with Muslims and, and help them to understand uh, who, who Christ is, and uh, what the Christian faith is. So I do uh, every, everything from teaching and preaching at universities, seminaries, colleges, different uh, 
church ministries uh, and churches, and I, even occasionally I preach on Sunday morning, though that's, that's not too common. <laughs> I, I, I know what you mean, brother. I know what you mean. Last week we were talking about the book, and uh, we were trying to extrapolate uh, uh, some things out of it, and uh, you mentioned about the research, and people can always go and listen to that archive show from last week. And uh, we uh, ended last week talking about, um, uh, you know, given your experience among uh, former Muslims, followers of Christ, what was inspiring to them uh, to bring him to Christ. And you talked about uh, the love of God uh, in general. That was one of the things that uh, definitely drew them. And I hear this all the time. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm an, myself is a testimony to that, but I hear almost unanimously uh, the love of God is one key factor in bringing Muslims to Christ. Now, what about some of the challenges, uh, for instance, that they are faced with? People in the West usually uh, assume from the beginning that persecution is the most difficult thing. Uh, in many places it is. Persecution is very real. But if you go and spend time, with, which I've done for years now, with these converts from Islam, you say, is persecution the hardest thing? Uh, most of them, some of them will say yes, but most of them will not say that that's the hardest thing. I think, broadly speaking, as I interpret their experiences, the hardest thing is the formation of of a new identity, of a stable identity as a believer in Christ, a disciple of Christ, who is also fill in the blankish, fill in the blank, you know, Turkish, Arab, um, Persian, and uh, many of them. It, the different cultures and societies they come from, and I'm sure you can speak to this yourself, you know, when you leave Islam, people feel like you're just betraying everything. You're betraying your heritage, your family, you're betraying your nation, your country. Um, so that's, uh, that's a real challenge for them. And then also, unfortunately, another part of that difficulty is that when they go to the church, whatever local church there is there, oftentimes uh, they're not welcomed very warmly. Uh, as you know, you know, Christians in the Middle East and in the Muslim world have had a really difficult time over the centuries uh, living in the status of dhimmi, or dhimme. Uh, they had inferior rights, and basically they were told, hey, you know, shut up, don't preach, don't evangelize, keep to yourself, and maybe you can stay around. It was a pretty precarious and difficult existence. Uh, so, you know, when a, when a Muslim comes in and says, hey, I want a Bible, or, hey, I heard uh, something on a podcast about this guy who's a believer from Saudi. Can I, can I become a believer? You know, or, uh, hey, I, I'm, I, I'm interested in being baptized. You know, I read, the, I read the Gospel of Matthew, and it talks about baptism. I, I want that. You know, most of these churches, they kind of flip, flip out. So, um, un, unfortunately, oftentimes, and this can be even true for Protestant and evangelical churches, too, unfortunately. But oftentimes, the church, which is the place, that community where you would, where you would expect for that uh, formation to happen, it doesn't happen. So that formation of a stable identity um, is really, I think, the main challenge that I saw. Absolutely. It's uh, really a heartbreaking thing. I hear stories like this all the time, and it's unfortunate because of issues like this, we have also theologies that keep popping up, like the insider movement extreme theologies as well, which hopefully your time will allow to talk about that, whether this episode or next week. But 
Nevertheless, uh, it is indeed, um, uh, you know, uh, interesting what you said, that it's not really the persecution, but it's rather the identity issue that becomes the struggle. And uh, um, not so sure, really, uh, sometimes I wonder if there is a one, uh, basically, solution to this. Uh, uh, but uh, i like to uh, hear more from you. Uh, what are some of the proposed um, or findings uh, in your research um, that would at least deal with this challenge or at least maybe uh, pacify it or or maybe be helpful to those who come from a Muslim background. Uh, can you share any, uh, you know, uh, of the issues that were helpful uh, to deal with this challenge? Mm-hmm. So Living Among the Breakage is primarily a descriptive book. Um, it's a book saying, you know, uh, Christianity is right, Islam is wrong, uh, because it's from a secular university. Of course, the approach that that I take, and it's fine. But I will tell you, though, uh, some of the uh, things that I've seen these churches doing. So instead of just telling you some of my own ideas, I want to tell you what these actual churches and communities who came from Islam, what they're doing. Because I think that's much more important than any kind of uh, personal opinions that I might have. So I'll tell you about an Iranian church uh, here in the States. And I talked about it in Chapter 6 of Living Among the Breakage. I, I was asking the pastor, who, who is a Christian, but who grew up in Iran and who speaks uh, Farsi very fluently, so even though he is an American by citizenship and he's a white guy, he, he, his cultural upbringing is extremely Persian. Um, so I asked him, I said, what do you do? Uh, what, do you, what does it look like when you baptize someone? See... I'm very interested in actually doing things. You know, Christianity, we tend to talk on ideas. I've learned that ideas are important, but what's really important is how people do things. So what does baptism actually look like? And he said, well, you know, we're, we're a Presbyterian church, so we use the standard Presbyterian liturgy. Uh, it's pretty basic, pretty straightforward. But, but we add a question. We tell these believers to write out how they came to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And I said, well, good grief. If you want to find one title for Jesus that is offensive to a lot of Muslims, it's Son of God. No kidding. You call him Messiah, or the Son of Mary, or even uh, Sayyid, you know, Lord or Master. Like, most Muslims would be like, yeah, that's fine. But Son of God, Ibn Allah, you know, a lot of people are are just going to have a cow. So I said, well, you know, Pastor, it seems like you've chosen kind of the most offensive title that you could possibly choose. And he says, yeah, and the other thing is that we tell all of, we tell all the people who are being baptized, and these are all Iranians converting from Islam now, we tell them to invite all of their family uh, who live locally in, in that city. And I said, okay, so you're telling me that you, when you do baptisms, you make them invite their whole family to a church service, and you make them stand up and explain to their family. And all the other families, I know some of these people, because they're all Iranians, and you make them explain how they came to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He said, yes, that's what we do. So I think that's really, uh, that's really intelligent, right? At first I thought this was confusing, because really this was just going to make problems. <clears throat> maybe where you don't necessarily need to make problems. But I think from their point of view, um, what's happening there 
context, not just a private home where you can have violence or swearing or whatever, because even someone who thinks that's heresy is not going to stand up and start, well, probably not going to do that right in a, in a church, you know, in the Western United States. Um, <clears throat> you are also showing them respect, showing them that becoming a Christian is not something secret, something that you keep in a closet, because, hey, we're here, we're at this church, we've got all these different people and in the congregation, a bunch of them are Muslims. We're not trying to keep this a secret from anyone. So I think that is a that is something very wise that's involved there. <clears throat> Let me tell you also about some of the teaching that I do. I, you had asked me about uh, kind of my my uh, my job earlier on. Uh, I'm invited yes. to teach internationally quite often, and oftentimes to groups of uh, believers who who have that background. And uh, I was in a place in North Africa, I won't say the name of the city, and I asked the, the pastor, I said, okay, well, I can teach your people. We've got basically five days. We've got a five-day seminar, uh, two lessons every day. I've got, we've got ten lessons, okay? And I will teach uh, Bible, I will teach theology, I will teach spirituality, I will, I will teach church history. I mean, all of these are areas that I know well, and I can, I can teach on all of these in Arabic. And he said, oh, church history. I said, church history? He said, yeah, I want you to teach these Christians in North Africa. I want you to teach them the history of Christianity in North Africa. Mm. So I said, okay, fine. I'll teach them church history. And I did the ten sessions on church history, from the very beginning down to the decline of uh, you know, North African Christianity uh, under Islamic imperialism. And... Uh, and uh, <laughs> It took me a while, but I thought, why did he choose church history? Like, you know, he's the pastor, and he, it was not even hard for him to make that decision. Uh, that also happened to me at Constantinople, uh, or sorry, Istanbul, at, at a Turkish church. I said the same thing. I said, you've invited me here to teach. Tell me what you want me to teach about. What's going to bless your people? And he said, oh, yeah, teach them about the history of Christianity in Constantinople. I said, okay, we'll do more church history. So why, why do you think that would be? Do you have any guesses, Al? Why, why do you think that these pastors said church history would be a good, a good topic for their people to learn? Well, it's kind of fascinating because I am searching for a Ph.D. right now, and history is important for me. I, if I want to take a shot at it, uh, probably they want to uh, emphasize that Christianity is uh, the original uh, cultural root in the area, and it declined as a result of maybe weaknesses in theology and Weaknesses in evangelism, allowing Islam to take over, possibly? Yeah, I think that's part of it. Yeah, so people, um, it, it helps with that identity issue, which we had discussed previously. Um, when they are coming from Islam, a lot of their family would be like, oh, you've left, you've left the, us for this European religion. Mm-hmm. But when they learn some of that history, they're like, no, no, no. <laughs> I haven't left you guys. You know, some of our ancestors were probably Christians. Um, way, way back, and I'm just going back to the older religion, the original religion, and it's a religion, it's beautiful, it's peaceful, uh, it's not telling me to go out and, you know, fight against people or anything like that. So these that I've seen uh, in different places in terms of trying to uh, strengthen uh, a sense of Christian identity and, and help people to be strong. Uh, I've got a couple of other examples, but those are the first ones that, that come to my mind. 
No, that's excellent. You know, I mean, I, I don't know really how I can use something like this in an Arab, uh, in, in Arabian Peninsula, I should say, um, converts, because, um, uh, you know, as you know, Christianity wasn't really rampant in there except in specific strategic locations only. But uh, certainly I have done some studies on this, uh, and it's sad to note that those in North Africa and in Turkey and in uh, areas like this who are persecuting, actually, Christians, they're literally persecuting their ancestors. Uh, they're persecuting the people that they originally came from anyway. And uh, that's, uh, that's the sad reality, of course. And uh, yes, that's interesting, really, that uh, you pointed that out. Um, one question I have uh, related to, um, for consideration, basically, what has been the most fascinating to you in witnessing the conversion of Muslims? if you want to share something like that. Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, the most fascinating thing, honestly, as someone who has done a lot of church history, uh, you know, I've taught early church, I love medieval church history, it's fascinating. Um, modern church, the missionary movement, global Christianity, which is my focus of my, my PhD. Uh, for me, the most fascinating and interesting thing, to be honest, is just that this thing is happening at all. Um, you know, for the first 1,400 years of kind of Muslim, or let's say 1,300 years of Muslim-Christian relations, you had these communities, they lived side by side, sometimes peacefully, oftentimes not, not so peacefully. Uh, but, you know, large numbers of conversion either way, especially from Islam to Christianity, were very rare. Uh, the, you know, the Sharia is in all four or in all the various Islamic jurisprudence schools, uh, is very clear on this. Uh, you know, there's a hadith that says, Man dinahu uh, Whoever changes his religion, slay him. So this is very firmly ensconced in Islamic practice. It goes back to like the 12th century. It's not going to change. It's not extremist Islam. It's not radical. It's not fringe. It's just kind of standard historical Orthodox Islam. So, you know, that creates a real incentive against converting uh, from Islam to anything else or Indeed, to atheism or agnosticism, just leaving Islam for nothing, that's apostasy, too. Yep, that's... But, but yeah, and in, in the 1960s, though, this movement happened in Indonesia. Um, uh, there was a, a missionary scholar from the Southern Baptist Church uh, named uh, Willis, I think, and he wrote a book about it, trying to understand what was happening there. 1965, was, right? Well, and it was over a million converts. He says up to two million converts. That's, that's a pretty generous number, but it could be, you know. Um, then we had this movement in Iran. You know, I, I don't think, I don't know if any of your listeners know this, but one of the most quickly growing churches in the world is the church in Iran. Uh, now, they have some enormous challenges, so I'm not trying to just say that, oh, you know, hurrah, uh, because, you know, it, it, could, it could die out, it could stop that growth. I, I don't know. That's true. But it is growing. So, um, for me, the most surprising thing is that this is happening, and, and it doesn't seem to be stopping. It seems to be continuing and, and growing, and we're seeing new movements developing in new places. Uh, but on the other hand, I don't want to romanticize this for anyone, including Christian listeners, because there are enormous challenges uh, for these believers, and in many places uh, we've seen movements start, but then they die out because... Uh, because the church is is not really committed to helping these things to flourish. 
Yes, and I'm looking really at a chart and also tables in one of your articles, if you like to uh, make reference to that article. And in there, you're showing some interesting, uh, basically, movements uh, for Muslims coming to Christ uh, at strategic uh, milestones in history, like the 1965, uh, uh, the coup in Indonesia against communism. Uh, You have the Iranian uh, revolution. You have the Al-Qaeda birth. Uh, You have the Algeria Civil War. And uh, I may add, uh, today we can say ISIS uh, is another factor um, Mm -hmm. into bringing Muslims to Christ. Uh, So that's really interesting because people need to realize that God actually uses these kind of catastrophic events that we, humanly speaking, look at it that way, to shine his light through all of that and bring desperate people who are seeking hope, joy, and peace to find that in the person of Christ, of course. So uh, thank you for bringing that up, brother. Now, one thing I left out from your, uh, basically, um, bio is the fact that, um, you know, after you studied Arabic, um, you moved to uh, Nazareth uh, of Galilee, and that's where uh, uh, that's why our Lord is called the Jesus of Nazareth. So you lived at uh, in that place, uh, which is primarily a Muslim-majority, and it's an Arab city in Israel. And um, there also, uh, you were part of founding academic, uh, uh, or you were the founding academic dean of something called the Nazareth Evangelical Theological Seminary, uh, or NETS. Tell us more about this experience, uh, if you don't mind. Yeah, so uh, NETS is a, it's a small seminary. Normally the academic dean is a very prestigious, uh, you know, high post at a big university, but we, we were a tiny seminary, and it's still there. It's since been merged with another uh, institution and goes by the name Nazareth Evangelical College. So if you want to Google something, that's the one to Google. Um, and uh, the, the issue, you know, for all of Israel, the population of Israel is about 1.9% Christian. And that includes all the Christians, Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, everything. So that doesn't mean all of them are, you know, very sincere or devout in their faith and their practice. Indeed, a lot of them aren't very very sincere or, or devout. Yeah, if, if you can really elaborate a little bit more on that uh, when you get a moment, uh, that's interesting as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll tell you a little bit about the Orthodox Church here in a, in a minute, because that really is the majority uh, church there. That's the historical church that really can trace its roots uh, back to Pentecost, I mean, if you want to go all the way to the beginning. Uh, but uh, the different Protestant and evangelical communities in Israel, which is, we're talking about a couple thousand people. We're talking about smaller than, you know, most megachurches, actually smaller than even most medium-sized churches in the United States, if you look at their membership. Um, they didn't have a place to train their uh, their ministers, whether they were going to be a pastor or a Sunday school teacher or a religion teacher to Christian school. So we had, we had men and women who were coming to study with us. And uh, the Association of Baptist Churches over there said, you know, we, we really need to have a place to, to form our people, but uh, this has to be uh, interdenominational because, uh, you know, these different denominations are very, very tiny. So even working together, it was still a small group just taking in all the different evangelical and, and Protestant and, and charismatic churches. But they did it. And I was invited to go there, so I taught church history and theology, as well as being the, uh, the academic dean of the seminary. It took a number of years, but ultimately it was up and going, and so at that point I uh, felt like it was time to, to 
move on, come back to the States. Uh, Nazareth is a Muslim-majority city. It's about 70% Muslim, 30% Christian today, although for centuries it was an Arab-Christian city. Um, right. But, uh, that, you know, that changed. Just like with Bethlehem, Bethlehem used to be a Christian city today. I think the Christians in Bethlehem are in the, the single percentages, really. Amen. So it, it's, a, it's a difficult situation, but that's what we were doing in Nazareth. I was uh, helping to get that seminary up and running, and it was just really wonderful. Recently I got a picture from one of my former students showing him uh, in Haifa, the city he lives in, yes. uh, at his ordination to be a pastor of, in his case, the Assemblies of God Church. So, uh, you know, it's just wonderful to see the fruit of that, uh, the fruit of that ministry. You know, previously they would try to send students overseas, but you know, you send a you send a, an Arab Christian from Israel overseas, and there's a good chance they're not going to come back, <laughs> right. uh, unfortunately. Or they would just kind of say, "Well, you know, Pastor, you know, Haddad will 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 mentor you," and that's it's good because whatever Pastor Haddad does well, that's you're going to learn how to do it well. But whatever he's bad at, you're going to get those bad habits too. So it was yes. not a it was not a perfect solution. Well, thank you, Dr. Miller. Um, obviously, our time is up here, so I would like to continue this discussion next week, if you don't mind. And uh, uh, to those of you who have just joined us, you are listening to Let Us Reason. Uh, uh, I'm your host, Alfadi, and with me uh, uh, here is Dr. Dwayne Alexander Miller. We were talking about uh, some of his work in Nazareth, and when we come back next week, we'll continue this exciting discussions. Uh, thank you again, and uh, hope uh, you can join us uh, next week. And uh, all of you can visit us at sierrainternational.com to listen to the archive show um, of uh, this particular episode and all previous ones. Until we meet again, have a blessed week. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.